Welcome to another sermon podcast from Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode will feature a sermon delivered by the Rev. Shannon Johnson Kirshner. The sermon is based on scripture from Psalm 40, verses 1 through 6, and Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Central Sunday Morning Service for the 11th of February, 2024, Transfiguration Sunday, was streamed to our website, our Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. A complete video or sermon audio replay of the service may be found on cpcatlanta.org. Select the upper right menu, and then Sermons Under Worship. We are going to be following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark during the season of Lent, and that journey begins here today. So I invite you to listen for God's living word coming from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So this is a strangely slow interlude in Mark's gospel. Mark rarely spends so much time on just one event. As Reverend Culver preached last month, he typically writes with a pointed urgency, dropping words and phrases like, immediately, right away, at once. And Mark never lets Jesus stay for too long in just one place. This quick narrative pace is why our mountaintop story might strike us as peculiar. Here we are trying to stay up with the action when Mark suddenly just stops the movement. Here in chapter 9, in the literal middle of the Gospel of Mark, he makes a shift from a story defined by urgency to a story defined by details. We're given details of time, six days later, of space, a high mountain apart, and of color, dazzling white beyond earthly possibility. Therefore, given the abrupt change of style, we must ask, why? Why did Mark find it necessary to stop the movement here for this moment on top of this mountain? I think we find hints on either side of the mountain story. Immediately before, Jesus gives the disciples a reality check about what they should expect during the rest of their time together. Mark writes, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected and killed, and then rise again. Jesus' honesty marks an important moment. It's the first time in Mark's gospel when Jesus speaks openly to his disciples about what is to come due to who he is as our boundary-crossing, empire-challenging Messiah. 
It's the first time Jesus lets his closest followers know about the pain and the heartache that's right around the corner. That tough conversation about the cost of discipleship and faithfulness is what comes immediately before the mountaintop moment. And then right after, we hear Jesus telling the disciples again about what to expect. Chapter 931, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. Mark goes on to write, the disciples were still very confused by Jesus' words of suffering and death, but after the mountain, though, they were too afraid to ask him to explain. We might wonder if they simply could not handle even considering that what Jesus had to say could possibly be true. So right before they go up, and shortly after they come down, the disciples hear tough preaching, things Jesus had not said to them before about the cost of discipleship. And yet, placed right here in the middle of these two stark sermons is this very slow interlude on the mountain the time when Mark stops the movement so we can all look around and stand with the disciples to see what we might see and to hear what we might hear. So let's look first. We know from earlier stories in our scripture that God often hides God's presence in an envelope of light to protect us from being overwhelmed by God's glory. Think burning bush, pillar of fire. And that happens again in this story But this time, God sets all God's glory loose in Jesus. As another preacher has written, it is as if God took the glory off of God's own face and tucked it inside Jesus, making him one big shining light, shining from every pore, dazzling in his brightness, causing everyone and everything around him to reflect the divine brilliance. The big theological word for this is transfiguration. That's why Susan chose to sing a song instead of explain that one to our kids. (laughs) I don't blame her. (laughs) It is God's way of saying about Jesus, look, it's really me, see for yourselves. And then to drive the point home even more, God places Moses and Elijah, the great lawgiver and the great prophet, beside the luminous Jesus. The two of them are our visual cues that this Jesus, this shining, glorious Jesus, is indeed the fulfillment of all the historical promises that God has made with God's covenant people throughout the generations. So now let's listen to the moment. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. If these words ring in our ears, it's because we've heard them before. We overheard God say those words to Jesus at the moment of his baptism. But here on the mountain, God speaks these words publicly for all disciples. This one is my beloved child. This one is your Messiah. Listen to him. Mark's poetic theological imagination employed in this mountaintop moment leads us once again to ask some questions. Why would God choose to give that gift of transfiguration vision to those disciples? Furthermore, why then? Right in between two very difficult conversations about the cost of being faithful. Did God hope that this luminous vision might shape their lives as they continued to follow Jesus on his way, following him back down the mountain and then through the betrayal and suffering and death? Did God hope that the memory of this transfiguration vision might give them courage for what was to come? 
And then why did the Spirit prompt Mark to offer that gift to us? It sure seems that Mark slowed down the story on purpose. And even though it only unfolds in our imagination, did Mark hope to give all of us the gift of a powerful, God-filled, luminous transfiguration memory so we too might have courage for whatever is to come on our own faith journeys? Perhaps we glean some wisdom about the why of the story. After that transfiguring moment of brilliant light and holy voice, things go quickly back to normal. The glory vanished as soon as it, as quickly as it had appeared. Mark states the return to normalcy with a matter-of-fact bluntness. When the disciples looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. After that glorious shining moment, full of blinding possibility and divine promise had passed, the disciples looked around and realized all they had left was the worn, tired, flesh and blood face of Jesus. The same face they saw day after day. No more light, no more glory, no more holy voice, just Jesus. And then, as if to add insult to injury, Jesus took them right back down the mountain, down back into all the brokenness, into all the despair, into all the need of the world, back to the hunger, back to the thirst, back to the hurting and the wounded and the despairing, back to the disbelieving, back to the cynical, back to, well, that's just the way it is. So do you think that as they walked back down, those disciples decided that they were going to intentionally remember what they had just experienced. Each day, when the alarm went off too early, or the ambulance siren sounded too chaotically, or the beeps on the hospital heart monitor chimed too erratically, or the oxygen tank whirred too loudly, in the middle of all that, each day, were they going to slow down and remember what they had experienced? a revealing of the promise of glory and hope, an all-encompassing divine presence, a presence they had seen clearly shining in Jesus. Would they remember all of that or not? My guess is they initially chose the not. For when we follow Jesus through the rest of Mark's gospel, as we will again during the season of Lent, it sure seems they forgot the whole thing. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. They all flee for him. At least for a good while, it appears that fear and defeat shaped their lives much more powerfully than the memory of brilliance and shining divine presence that had been revealed on that mountain. Their transfiguration vision seemed to become completely overshadowed and almost overcome by the deep trenches and despair of a Good Friday world, at least for a time. The disciples chose to not remember. But those first disciples aren't the only ones who make that, that decision, are they? We face it too, don't we? Every single day, when our alarm goes off, and the ambulance sirens sound, and the heart monitors beep, and the oxygen tanks whirl, and the children cry, and the cell phone rings, and the refrigerator is empty, and the people still sleep in tents under the highway, every single day, we, like those first disciples, are also called to decide what memories, 
What story, whose story is going to shape our lives and the way we live them? Every single day, we decide what kind of a world we live in. And that decision holds power. That decision can either give us courage for risky and faithful discipleship, or it can just drain it all away. Will we choose to make the claim that we live in a transfiguration world, a world that is, as Barbara Brown Taylor writes, wonderfully porous, a world in which God's glory pulses just beneath the surface of things and every once in a while leaks in through some of the holes, bathing us and everything around us in this brilliant light of transfiguring promise, Easter hope, all-embracing divine presence. Will that, will that be the choice that we make? Or will we choose to assert, either on purpose or simply out of exhaustion or apathy, we, we live in a world where everything is flat and exactly as it seems, no light, no holes, no fullness, no promise of divine presence, and certainly no honest hope. Just as it was a battle for Peter and James and John, that choice is one of our everyday spiritual battles too. Allow me to get personal. One of the honest blessings of serving as a pastor, especially in a congregation like Central, is that I get to see this choice laid bare every day. Every day, I'm confronted with stories that could easily tip me one way or the other. Sometimes those stories are the ones we all hear and share, like the continued horrific deaths in Gaza, or the willful inability of our Congress to govern, or the Georgia decision to have a tax-free weekend for guns rather than for clothes and school supplies. But sometimes the stories come to me through online prayer requests or via email. Sometimes the stories come from conversations in my office or coffee shop about new diagnoses or broken relationships or lonely lives. As all the pastors in here know, we preacher people have this privilege of hearing lots of stories. And in the face of these stories, I often have to make an honest decision. Each day, sometimes each hour, I have to decide if I'm going to live in a flat world where everything is exactly as it seems with no holes, no light, no fullness, no promise of presence, and certainly no honest hope. Is that the storyline that I'm going to give the power to define my life and my work? Am I going to follow the way of those early disciples whose transfiguration memory was almost overcome by fear and Good Friday? Or by what can only be God's grace, is it possible for me to trust one more time that God is somehow present in all of that brokenness and pain and danger, in all of those Good Friday trenches, not making it all go away, even if that's what I would choose, but somehow working out a transfiguring kind of healing, a healing I may or may not understand or even agree with, yet is being done nonetheless. By the power of God's grace, can I imaginatively slow down, go back to the mountain to reground myself in a world in which God's glory pulses just beneath the surface of things? And every once in a while leaks out through some of those holes and promises it's not over yet. 
that God remains loose in our world and that God does some of God's best work in the dark and Easter always rises. Which storyline, I ask myself, whose storyline, what memory is going to shape me that day? For the choice we make directly affects the way we live. When we choose to slow down and remember the transfiguration vision, then we are much more open to seeing that light leaking into our world. We are much more open to seeing joy blooming in our world. We are much more open to listening for gratitude, to working for hope, to seeking God's justice here and now in our world. Every single day, sometimes every single hour, you and I have the option to make a different choice than the one those first disciples made. We don't have to so quickly forget what God has shown us in Jesus. We can choose to slow down, to remember, and to lean into God's promise of a porous, God-leaking, divine, hope-infused world and let that faith-based reality shape us and how we act and think each day. Or we can choose to do as the first disciples seem to do. We can choose to quickly forget about any promise of glory or newness or divine presence. We can choose to see a world where everything is flat with no light, no holes, no fullness. We can choose to only see a world where Good Friday seems to hold all the power and the trenches of daily life can be just about overwhelming. Siblings in Christ, that's our choice every single day. Whose story, what memory will shape our lives? Will it give us courage for discipleship or will it leak it out? Will we choose to live in a porous transfiguration kind of world where God's presence might just surprise us or not? We make this choice every single day. And on some days, it seems like we have to make that choice every single hour. And yet, I'm pretty sure the gospel writer Mark hoped we might remember. Perhaps that hope is why he finally slowed down. So what will it be, church? At least for today, just today, maybe even just right now, what choice are we going to make? Amen. We are glad you joined us for this podcast from Central Presbyterian Church. Central is a welcoming congregation of the Presbyterian Church USA located in downtown Atlanta across from the state capitol. For more information about the life, work and ministries please visit our website at cpcatlanta.org. We also invite you to join us for worship and Sunday school and experience this exciting and diverse body of believers who seek to be bearers of God's justice in the world. Thanks again for listening.